Good morning, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is the 23rd of September, 2023. So that makes it the first official day of autumn in the Northern Hemisphere. Absolutely the best season of the year. So to celebrate that season, let's do an authentic biochemistry lecture on protein translation and some specific associations with alteration of translation upon stress response. This is what we've been leading up to from the previous two lectures. So if you haven't listened to those last two, please go back and do that. Those are just canonical, real basic elementary protein synthesis lectures in eukaryotes. So <clears throat> cellular stress of multiple causes will trigger multiple alterations in cellular metabolism. And that includes an alteration of gene expression in the mitochondrion, in the nucleus, as well as bioenergetic phenomena associated with those changes in gene expression. And that by that I mean there can be an increase in ATP synthesis or a decrease. There can be a robust electron transport chain activity, or there can be a slowing down of the ETC, which can build up reactive oxygen. Remember that stresses, in terms of communication to a cellular response, may lead the cell to carry out functions leading to its own death. That, of course, is apoptosis or programmed cell death. And there are multiple forms of that. The classical apoptosis is one that does not generate a great deal <clears throat> of inflammatory response because the cell is, uh, cellular debris is essentially engulfed by macrophages and there is no high output of peptide or nucleic acid that is sent out from the dying cell. All that is compartmentalized until the cell essentially just start, starts to fall apart at the plasma membrane level. And when that occurs, fragments of the cell are quickly picked up by M2-type macrophages, for example. So other phagocytes also play a role. Now, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a cell in the very early stages of stress. So gene expression is altered. Basic bioenergetics can be altered. And of course, communicating all that processing is the endomembranous system. So that means lipid modifications will happen very rapidly. Those can include pulling membrane lipid fractions out of various endomembranous compartments by lipid membrane graft translocation or by alterations of fatty acid content and polar head group in situ in the membranes, thus altering the bio, biophysical structure of the membrane, exposing certain glycerolipids and sphingolipids and plasmalogens um, to enzymes, which can then remove those lipids or, more often than not, alter their molecular structure. And that molecular structure isn't something that is random. It's very specific to deal with specific stress phenomena.
Okay. So the range of responses involving multiple receptor rheostats, such as the toll-like receptors, pattern, which are a form of pattern recognition receptor, will mediate the ETC oxfos bioenergetics convertase proteasome um, endnote on protein turnover, nation transcription, translational moderation, and as I just mentioned, membrane lipid reorganization at the sequence level. <clears throat> now, there are stress-activated protein kinases called SAPKs, and they are essential for regulating some of the early stages of these stress responses. These kinases then, because they are stress-activated, can associate with cytotoxic and or pathogenic incursions. So the cytotoxic can be an overproduction of a uh, naturally occurring host protein, for example. And the pathogenic can, of course, be an invading microorganism or sometimes something like a rickettsia um, or even a virus. Right? Now, there are two SAPK families in mammals. You've heard of them before, but you have, probably haven't heard of them, at least not from our recent lectures, me calling them SAP kinases. But they are P38 and C-June-N terminal kinase. So P38 and J and K. The activation of P38 induces almost immediately cell cycle arrest. While J and K goes down a different pathway, and what do you think it does? It promotes apoptosis. So there is a process we need to now um, bring into focus. It's called ribotoxic stress response, RSR. And yes, SAPK signaling through the P38, J and K, J and K pathway will be involved in the RSR response. And this can occur between um, oh, at seconds to minute level. So it's not an immediate response like what occurs in the membrane. Membrane activity can be changed at the level of microseconds. Slight changes in, in for example, polarity of the membrane or incursion of peptides or carbohydrate uh, signaling through a membrane or any kind of alteration we just talked about, lipid modification in situ, can be at the microsecond to second level of the membrane. So what the RSR is, is all the way up to minute scale temporality. And again, cytotoxic agents can do this. So xenobiotics, multiple forms. And UV light also has been used to generate the RSR. And what basically it involves, the response, is to target the ribosomes and induce some kind of modification of polypeptide elongation that's already in process. Now, there are components of initiation of peptide synthesis that are involved in the RSR and in peptide termination. But what's most studied is peptide elongation, and that's because it has the longest temporal phase sequence. 
so it can be studied more, right? Because you can find then limit protein or peptide products, and you look at that, you can examine how those peptide products are, are dealt with by the cell in terms of degradation or maintenance uh, for uh, you know termination and then utilization sometimes in a toxic uh, event ontology. Besides all of what I just explained to you, besides this polypeptide effect of RSR, there is, of course, the non-negotiable ribosomal RNA degradation. So this would be ribonucleolytic activity. Okay? So the activation of P38, J, and K depends specifically on what is known as the mitogen-activated protein kinase, kinase, kinase. That's right. This is a protein. It's activated by mitogens, that is, organic compounds that will affect mitosis, cell division, right? This is mitogen-activated polypeptide that has a phosphorylation activity, that's a kinase, which will phosphorylate a kinase, which also has phosphorylation activity, which finally will phosphorylate a third kinase, which, of course, will carry out faithfully the introduction of phosphate to appropriate amino acids, which can pick up phosphates, such as serine, threonine, tyrosine residues. So that there is a there is a map KKK known as ZAK. That's Z A K. And you can tell a biochemist did not name that, right? Because these cute little names we would never do. Even though map kinase 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 is rather difficult to run through. I just did it for you in what less than a minute. And that's about a longer probably would be take would take to be activated, by the way. Um but anyways, it's known as ZAK, as Z-A-K. So another name for it is MLK7, but it's in the older literature. In humans, that protein is called ZAK. So in general, sufficient stress results in some kind of repression of global translation initiation. Now that occurs, as I promised you would occur, by reducing the initiation via phosphorylation of the eukaryotic initiation factor 4G or the eukaryotic initiation factor 4, 4E or 4G, okay? And so when that occurs, and it occurs within the translation initiation complex, RSR is turned on, okay? So not the free protein, not the free protein, when the protein is associated with an initiation complex ready to initiate nascent polypeptide synthesis. Now, there are four unique IF2A kinases. Each one initiates a specific integrated stress response. So, the integrated stress response is more general than the RSR, integrated, you can tell, because it promotes sometimes cell survival in response to unique sensed stress induction. So there's a protein called GCN2 that is involved in the ISR response. 
and that protein can be activated. So it's going to be a, a protein associated now with the initiation by amino acid starvation. Now, why would that happen? Well, the cell will not initiate protein synthesis unless all 20, at least 20 protein amino acids are available for protein synthesis. Now, it doesn't have to be equal molar amounts of each amino acid because proteins don't have equal molar amounts of each amino acid. It's not stochastic, though, as either. It just means you will need the entire repertoire of amino acids and the entire repertoire of transfer RNAs and iso-accepting transfer RNA synthases to be able to carry out polypeptide synthesis of any given proteome required. So there's a sensing mechanism for determining the relative concentrations of amino acids. And as you might guess, um, if you're you know, a budding biochemist, um, the essential amino acids will be recognized in particular uh, sensitivity because the essential amino acids, what? They are coming from the diet. They cannot be synthesized de novo. So their relative concentrations are more cogently and universally necessary for polypeptide synthesis because if they're not available in the cell um, by exposure to receptors that are measuring amino acid composition, then no net protein synthesis would even be initiated, you see. Whereas if they are non-essential amino acids, it would take a much um, further decrease or decrement of those amino acids to turn on such a response. And way before that occurs, you're usually getting some kind of autophagic response. You're shutting down protein synthesis anyway. You're in protein degradation mode. And the protein degradation mode is doing what? It's breaking down polypeptides that I have aged in the cell. And yes, proteins can be sensed on their temporal nature in the cell. We talked about this before. Uh, and that's basically has a lot to do with their, their activity as proteins, whatever their particular function is. And the decrement or the, or the decline of that activity. Right? That's how the aging of the proteins are detected. Plus, of course, any oxidation or alteration of the R group or any kind of proteolytic fragmentation or problem with the protein in the right um, subcellular compartment. See, there's, there's many things to think about, but there's not too many to think about because I think I covered most of the ground just right then and there. Now, <clears throat> the stress that occurs um, in, in some of these cases is a repression of global translation initiation. And when that occurs, as I just said, you're going to get a phosphorylation of initiation factors. Okay? So we just talked about um, the phosphorylation of intrinsically associated proteins. Let's be more specific and say IF2A will uh, be affected by kinases via the phosphorylation of certain um, amino acids linked to that 
initiation factor 2A that are proteins that, that link up during the initiation process to make the complex. And those proteins will be phosphorylated by mTORC1. Okay. Uh, now, phosphorylation of intrinsically disordered IF4E binding proteins, these are the ones that I'm talking about that interact with the initiation factors. So these are called initiation factor binding proteins now. Okay. So you have for it, not only do you have the initiation factor, you also have them interacting with elongation factors. Okay, so these are binding proteins which will bind to after phosphorylation by mTORC1 to either initiation factors or elongation factors. Okay, that's the bottom line. Four different IF2A kinases exist. And each will initiate the integrated stress response, but specifically to promote cell survival. And I already told you about the GCN2, which is linked to the amino acid deprivation. There is also a PKR that is turned on by double-stranded RNA. Double-stranded RNA is seen as a potential danger signal in the cytoplasm, such as double-stranded RNA is a common replicate, replicative intermediate in viral replication. So you have a protein called PERK, P-E-R-K, which will be, it's a kinase, and it will accumulate when unfolded proteins accumulate in the ER. That has also been associated with heme deprivation because some of the proteins, of course, require heme insertion. Remember those? Yes, such as the cytochromes. Okay, so you see how there's multiple integration of different protein families working through either elongation factors or initiation factors and their cognate binding proteins as phosphorylated by mTORC signaling the integrated stress response. So this protein I brought up a couple times already. Now I will tell you what it do, does. Excuse me. GCN2 will phosphorylate specifically IF2-alpha. And it does so by sensing uncharged transfer RNAs. Now, how does that occur? Well, you the cell obtains uncharged tRNAs and they accumulate during amino acid starvation. Okay. So GCN2 can also be activated by any isolated ribosomal P stalk by ribosomal stalling independent of uncharged transfer RNAs. So there's an alteration of transfer RNA conformation that can be detected even if that transfer RNA is charged with an amino acid. Okay? And those, again, are perturbations in the transfer RNA molecular structure. Okay? 
right. So the degree of GCN2 activation, remember that's the kinase, the phosphorylates, the initiation factor, will correlate with the severity of ribosomal stalling. Now, why would the ribosome stall? Well, I just told you. If you have uncharged amino acids in the tRNA, the tRNA can't move from the A position to the P position and then ultimately to the E or exit position, right? So it stalls. You understand? So if it stalls, <laughs> that's going to activate GCN2. And the, uh, and the frequency of the stalling, and specifically by that I mean the temporal signature of the stalling, how long it lasts, will allow the cell to detect whether or not the amino acid starvation is uh, a minor temporal issue or indeed the cell is deficient in amino acids for bipeptide synthesis. Okay, so that means that GCN2 is directly monitoring the status of the elongating ribosomal complex. So that's how efficient protein synthesis is. Now I'm going to tell you something about ribosomal collisions. These collisions have been shown to be significant cellular triggers for the ribosomal mediated quality control. Uh, and that occurs because it diminishes, therefore, the cytotoxic effect of any potential incomplete protein uh, synthesis. And, of course, that's generated from the same kinds of mechanisms we just went through before with stalling, by the examination of the substrates for the reaction event. So in this case, Ribosomal collisions can occur when there are structurally damaged or otherwise mutated, modified, inappropriate sequences, for example, messenger RNA. So this is a way of editing out um, inappropriate mutated messenger RNAs. And the way that this is done is kind of like a proofreading mechanism, right? So if you have ribosomal collisions, what that means is that the ribosome isn't able to function to carry out polypeptide synthesis before another ribosomal complex gets started. So you have too many, you know, in the polyribosomal system, too many ribosomes carrying out protein synthesis that is not completion, completing elongation and going to termination. So they call it a collision process. And you can understand what's happening biochemically. Those different ribosomal complexes are competing for the transfer RNA pool, the synthetase pool, and the amino acid pool, as well as the transcript specificity and its relative concentration and translatability. Okay, so these responses then include targeting the messenger RNA. So targeting the messenger RNA, what is that going to mean? It's going to degrade the RNA because maybe the RNA is the issue here. So they have a name for that. Again, these are, these are people who do molecular genetics. They call that the no-go decay or NGD. That means you're not continue, the cell determines not to continue to use the message. And so it degrades it. They call it decay. Yeah. 
and the nation peptide itself is also removed, but not by the NGD mechanism, which obviously is a ribonucleolytic process, but by the ribosome-mediated quality control complex, that's RQC, which is proteolytic. Proteolytic process is removing the nation peptide because it's presumed damaged, right? So when you when the cell is experiencing massive stress, like okay, let's let's put this into some kind of particular biomedical feature. Let's say a stroke, let's say an ischemic heart attack, or let's put it into an accidental link. Let's say you're walking along the ridge of a mountain and you fall, and you're taking on multiple um, contusions and lacerations and maybe a concussion as you're falling down, right? The whole, that will be an entire body response and the signaling will catch on very quickly. You can't very well have, be having protein synthesis during an intense stress response like this where, for example, blood pressure is going to drop dramatically because of a laceration, right? Or again, with a stroke, same kind of thing, some kind of ischemia. Right, the prevention of oxygen uh, secreting into the tissue bed, you know, ischemia, oxygen deprivation. So no longer can there be any protein synthesis because you need ATP for protein synthesis and you need molecular oxygen for oxidative phosphorylation. Right? And glycolysis is going to be sufficient to be able to just respond to all this massive protein synthesis that may have been going on just prior to the stroke or just prior to the accident. Okay, so you get the idea why this becomes global quickly. And the the massive stress that occurs can also be phenocopied, if you will, or pathophenocopied, better word. I don't know if I just invented that word, but it doesn't matter. No big deal. During, say, a virulent pathogen infection, like, say, a massive bacterial infection, because of an open wound, like a sepsis response, right? Yes. Tires shutting down a protein synthesis, right? Likewise, proteinopathies. And you know what? Proteinopathies can also occur because of a mutant protein that induces other proteins to alter their conformation, right? So this occurs in toxic shock type proteins. It can occur in the various um, tau and um, amyloid precursor protein discussions we have uh, in central nervous system degenerative processes. So you understand that those kind of proteinopathies, why they're occurring is because the cell is not manufacturing the correct repertoire of polypeptides. You're getting a massive amount of certain proteins. Massive amount can mean massive partial proteolytic degradation or massive partial um, faltering of elongation or termination, meaning a lot of protein that is not functional in the cell, so it's a proteinopathy. Right? So you understand how this might, might be conducted. Oncogenesis will also be a, a massive stress. Hyperinflammatory response, as with uh, obesity. All of these are going to be quality controlled via this polyribosomal event domain. So 
you now you're getting into um, serious pathophysiological responses that can occur from one moment to the next. Even if there's some kind of prodromal thing right before a stroke, for example, or an ischemic heart attack, the body isn't prepared for that tremendous loss in, in uh, blood pressure or tremendous increase in blood pressure or a blockage of blood flow. Therefore, um, you know, carbohydrate utilization as well as oxygen requirements, right? And so this happens very, very quickly. And it can happen systemically throughout the body. And the process itself, these ISRs and RSRs, can actually result in high morbidity and even death of the uh, person. Because with no protein synthesis, when some proteins are necessary to carry out a defense subsequent to the lesion or to the accident, right, to the stress occurrence, if there aren't the correct proteins being synthesized to deal with the stress, then quickly, for example, a bacterial pathogenic uh, infection gets increased to such a level that the person dies uh, from septicemia. See how this works. So protein synthesis is always monitoring the process, the, the mechanism of proteins. They're always monitoring the overall status of each cell in communication with every other cell in the body by having mechanisms which can recognize similar signatures of stress and with a unique um, ability to determine from what um, domain that's occurring, right? Intracellular, extracellular response. Okay, I'll finish this lecture soon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, first day of autumn. 2023, saying bye for now.